6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Chronicles, chapters 10 through 13. Well, we're in 1 Chronicles. Chapters 10 through 13. And by way of just a quick summary review, the word in the Hebrew really means the words concerning the days, is the Hebrew title. Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is counted as one book. That's a, a reckoning in which makes 22 books in the Tanakh, which is the same number of the Hebrew letters. In the Greek translation, the Septuagint, they really call it the Greek term for supplements because the Septuagint translators regarded Chronicles, both first and second, as a supplement to uh, Samuel and Kings, especially first and second Kings. So if you're going to review uh, our lessons as you go, it's a good time to skim through your notes from especially uh, second Samuel uh, on. Uh, and the Latin Vulgate picks up on that, in the, in the Latin call it Chromicon. It's from that we get our English, if you will. But first and second Kings really represent a political record. First and Second Chronicles represents a religious record. The focus of Chronicles will be the Davidic dynasty. They, they'll have a few... We'll have just a little picture of the death of Saul, but we jump right into David, what made him great. Uh, they gloss over his shortcomings because the real focus isn't measuring him. It's to establish the dynasty and the history of the uh, southern kingdom. So... Uh, they take the form of a history. They commence, strange enough, they commence with Adam, really, as you probably discovered when we went through chapter 1, wading through those genealogies, all the way uh, through the death of Saul, with only a few fragments in there. They finally end, the book, the, the Second Chronicles, end with the decree of Cyrus of Persia, when, the, when Babylon is conquered and they're released to go back home, when the exile is over, in other words. So this takes us all the way through to the exile. And David and Judah are the primary focal points with a lot of emphasis on the priestly and Levitical aspects, because it's, that's why in many respects you can view it as a religious history of the southern kingdom. And uh, the genealogy of the first nine chapters. The rest of First Chronicles will deal with the reign of David himself, from chapters 10 through 29. Second Chronicles pick it up with the reign of Solomon, and it will carry it on for about 425 years through the whole Davidic dynasty. And uh, the northern kingdom had... 21 dynasties, the southern kingdom had one, the, 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 the dynasty of David. And uh, so if you timeline this, as we did and learned the Bible in 24 hours, you recognize this timeline here from Samuel to Saul to David to Solomon. When Solomon dies, there's a civil war, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. The northern kingdom splits off, goes from bad to worse, and gets wiped out by the Assyrians, 722. But the southern kingdom can, has a few exceptions of bad, many bad kings, but a few exceptions. But they end up going, not, not being wiped out, but going into exile for 70 years. Not that they didn't deserve it, but God had made a commitment to David. That's the only thing that really saved them. That's why they had only a 70-year exile. They weren't wiped out. They were allowed then to return to the very day, by the way, that Jeremiah had predicted. And so First and Second Samuel covers right up to the uh, reign of Solomon. And First Kings and Second Kings carry it 
right on to the exile. And um, they, split, first the king, they split between Elijah and Elisha, basically. The book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles parallels 2 Samuel, in a sense, and 2 Chronicles will cover it from 1 Kings to the end of 2 Kings, but from a different point of view. So Chronicles is like a supplement, in a sense. There's, there are many duplications, but in large measure, Chronicles is a, uh, a uh, very... Uh, it has an agenda to um, uh, present uh, the, the Davidic dynasty. So, First and Second Samuel, you may you may want to review your notes for this general study, uh, and then First uh, and Second Kings, David's forty-year reign in Jerusalem, and then uh, Solomon, the divided kingdom, and so forth. And uh, so, and Second Chronicles will be a recap. So. And 1 Samuel, Samuel was the last of the judges, and uh, he, he, the first Samuel he focuses on Saul. Uh, a promising beginning, but obviously later folly and sin, and then that sets the stage for David. Many people assume that Saul was a response, that the reason they have a king is because they were screaming for a king, so God reluctantly let him have it. Um, that's not that, that's a that's a that's an uninformed perspective. David was prophesied long before they begged for a king. His genealogy is outlined in Genesis 38, encrypted behind the text. Strangely enough, it's also laid out in the Book of Ruth. So David was destined to be king. They're they're screaming for they just uh, Samuel uh, or God through Samuel gave them uh, uh, what they asked for. You always got to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> And uh, he, sa- he looked good, sound good, but it was a big mistake. In any case, uh, last part of 1 Samuel, he, David gets anointed, and he starts, and he, of course, is a fugitive under Saul, and all those adventures constitute 1 Samuel. But then you get to 2 Samuel, you get his triumphs. He, was, he ruled for seven years at Hebron among just two tribes, the Judah and Benjamin. And, uh, but God really counts his kingship from the time that he's king of all Israel. And uh, so he will be at Jerusalem 13 subsequent years after that. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that in, in, in our chronicle study. In the book of Samuel, it continues with David's trouble in his family and in the nation. He makes a mess of things in many respects. He's, not just the sin of Bathsheba, there's several other issues, but as a result of all of that, his family is a mess. And uh, so, uh, Chronicles will gloss over that because it's really got a different agenda. It's looking at the, the kingdom as a whole. So, we went through the first nine chapters from Adam to Jacob, Jacob to David, David to Zedekiah, and the tribal appointments in those genealogies that opened the book. But uh, we're now in the second section of First Chronicles, and uh, we're going to deal with David's reign at Jerusalem. Even the Hebron thing is sort of glossed over as far as the Chronicle writers are concerned. If you visualize the chroniclers as Levites or priests and so forth, you, it, it, you'll get that feel, you, you get the feeling that they write about what's important to them, not necessarily doing a balanced overall picture. They're really trying to profile a, a, a Levitical perspective. Okay, so let's just jump in with chapter 10. It's the only chapter in Chronicles dealing with Saul that's sort of just starting uh, by cleaning up the past here, so to speak. Saul had early promise, good-looking, sharp, solid, many respects, striking physical superiority. He was modest at first, direct, generous, uh, 
But then he declines. He gets to be very irreverent, very presumptuous, and very willful, and gets himself, goes from bad to worse. He ends up being disobedient to God's instructions, indulges in deceit. He fails to destroy the Amalekites. If he had done what he was told to do, there never would have been a Haman in the book of Esther. Because he's a direct descendant of the person that Saul was supposed to kill. And his career sort of climaxes, if I can use that phrase, um, within consulting the witch at Endor, that bizarre thing. And, of course, the witch is shocked because Samuel does really show up, apparently. And um, uh, she sees it. He only hears him. Samuel predicted, you'd never see me again after this day. So he, there's some technicalities that are very provocative. But in any case, uh, and it points out that, by the way, Saul, tomorrow you're going to be with me. <laughs> so so uh, uh, that next day, of course, Saul and his, and his son is, are, are, are killed. So let's jump in. First Chronicles 10. Verse 1, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and after his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, and the, son, the, you know, the sons of Saul. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded of the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Strange, that's a tough spot to be in. Your king, your boss, wants you to help kill him, and he refuses. So Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword and died. So Saul died, and his three sons, and all his house died together. So that's the dismal the, the tale. Now, we're not going to get into this here particularly from an exam point of view, but if somebody asks you who killed Saul, it gets to be quite a debate. Because David, in 2 Samuel, is, counters an Amalekite who claims he killed him. And he takes credit for having killed Saul, creating the impression that Saul was trying to kill himself and didn't, that so the Amalekite took care of it. And was, the Amalekite was a little shook because David probably didn't believe him in the first place, but it didn't matter. If he's claiming that he killed the king, then he's a dead man. And he was. So he kills the Amalekite. And, uh, but according to the scripture, then, if you take the scripture seriously, you have to end up believing the Amalekite was just making that story up. Because here, it clearly confirms that Saul killed himself, if you will. Not, it's not a big deal. But uh, uh, it'll never surprise you to find the things that, uh, that uh, commentators find to argue over. The most trivial textual emanations, and, and they usually don't have anything to do with doctrine, but they'll, you know, write PhDs, theses, and stuff, deciding how to split hairs and so forth. Okay. And when all the men of Israel that were in the valley saw that they fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead... Then they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. The big disaster time here. It came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And when they had stripped him, they took his head and his armor 
and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to carry tidings unto their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Bad times. This is, these are dark days for them. Now, first, the first 12 verses here of 1 Chronicles 10 are almost identical to 1 Samuel 31, for those of you that are paying attention to that part of it. And uh, now, Chronicles adds the detail that his head was fastened in the temple of Dagon, um, but it omits the fact that they hung his body on the wall at Bethshan. That's going to come up here in a minute. But this, this Dagon idol is something that we want to f refresh ourselves on a little bit because I want to take you on a review shortly about some other issues. But Dagon, uh, they, they um, have found evidence, archaeological evidence, that he was worshipped before 2000 B.C. So very early, he was a storm god, a sea god in various forms, also related to grain or fertility, if you will. And uh, because dag is a fish, but daga is to multiply or increase and grow. And so there's some, some cross-linkages there. He is regarded in their, in their world as the father of Baal. And uh, he's sometimes represented as a half-man, half-fish, sometimes a half-gal, too. So you get the mermaid thing derives from this sometimes. But by the Phoenicians and the Philistines, uh, the seacoast tribes there. And uh, he's typically in the temples, they find... Uh, at Gaza, Ashdod, Bethshan, uh, Beth Dagon in Judah, and Joshua 15, and Asher, and also at Nineveh. So he gets around. The fact they find him at Nineveh, by the way, gives you an insight that you probably will not find in the book of Jonah. Because they generally assume that Jonah survived the, the big fish thing, but probably bleached albino. But whatever, those are conjectures by various scholars, but his going through Nineveh with a message, having survived the fish, may have gotten their attention because of their worship of Dagon. There's a linkage there that's not obvious from the book of Jonah that uh, seems to be justified from archaeological evidence. Who knows? We'll see. But um, we'll come back to Dagon uh, before this evening's over on, on another reflection here. But let's move on now. Verse 11, And when all Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines, what the, all that the Philistines had done to Saul, they arose, all the valiant men. See, earlier, Saul had done Jabesh Gilead some major favors. And so they felt, even though he's dead, they felt an allegiance to him in that sense. So they arose, all the valiant men, and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the oak at Jabesh, and fasted seven days. Glib little verse, but doesn't really get across the fact that these were valiant men. They probably took great jeopardy in going to Bethshan to get the to recover the bodies to give it a decent burial, and so that's a testimony to their regard, if you will, of Saul. So the chronicler continues. So Saul died for his transgressions, which he committed against the Lord. Get the point here. See, the chronicler is giving you an editorial comment here. Saul died, not because the Philistines killed him, he died for his transgressions, which, which he committed against the Lord. What were those transgressions? That's a great exam question. He failed to kill the king of Agag, and he consulted the witch at Endor, just for starters, there's a lot of others. Even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, 
and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. So there's the witch of Endor issue coming up. And inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. That's a quick editorial summary by the chronicler himself. I want to alert you to that. In the book of Chronicles especially, as we go through history, you'll see little verses inserted that reflect an opinion that, in effect, is the opinion of God about the... See, you can say, why, how, why was Saul killed? Well, the Philistines killed him. No, he died because he transgressed against the Lord. And that's not, that's not a Chuck Missler opinion or whoever. This is a chronicler's opinion. And we're going to discover when we get to Chronicles 35 a couple of verses that have been overlooked by most scholars that will really unravel, probably, some of the biggest mysteries of the Ark of the Covenant. So when we get there, I'll hold that out to you. It's going to be kind of fun when we get there because the Ark of the Covenant has a history that's documented that everybody's overlooked. It's documented in Second Chronicles 35 as well as archaeological evidence that we've been able to find, discover. So we'll talk about that as we go along. In any case, David's on the, on the scene now, so that brings us to chapter 11, the reign of David. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. To get the picture, you need to understand the politics here. He had been ruling in Hebron for seven years, but just over two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which are loyal to him personally. But now what's happened is then all Israel gathered together with, uh, unto Hebron. And moreover in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. And so now this is where, from God's point of view, David is really king, because he's king now over all Israel, not just a couple of his loyal tribes, all twelve in effect. And uh, so this is when he really got going. We are, um, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Those are strong terms from Israel, the northern, northern group of tribes. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king, to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabez, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And so, again, a glib phrase that involved a conquest, which they undertook, and a Jebus, which becomes Jerusalem, is midway between. See, it's actually, Jerusalem is really not in Judah, it's on the, on the border, it's actually in, in Benjamin. But this is a good choice because it's, it's a compromise between the north and the south in a, in a tribal sense. And the inhabitants of Jabu said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zuriah, went first up and was chief. Zuriah is a half-sister of, uh, of uh, David. And David dwelt in the castle, therefore they called it the city of of David. Let's talk a little bit about geography. There's Mount Moriah going vertically here on the chart, if you will. 
And the, the, the outlines there are the walls that Solomon was later going to build. North is to the top in this little sketch. Mount Zion is on the west side. And Mount of Olives on the east side. There's valleys. There's a ridge going up between them. The ridge between Mount Zion and this ridge is called the Teropian Valley. It's been filled in since. Between this ridge and to the eastern side, Mount of Olives, is the Kidron Valley. So if you visualize three, three ridges, if you will, Mount Zion, Mount of Olives on the extreme with a ridge up between them, you get the picture with the Hinnom Valley going along the south. Let me show you this on a topological map, which is a little more descriptive. So, oh, by the way, City of David is in the southern tip of it also called Ophel there. And uh, uh, later on, David will buy the area that later becomes the temple. And uh, this is an area where it's difficult to separate Jewish traditions from actual facts. It's because they have beliefs about this that are not necessarily correct. But there's a Gihon spring that's a source of water that was outside the wall. So Hezekiah, in his day, builds this uh, tunnel it goes to the Pool of Siloam to provide the water within the city. And that's one of the things you want to do when you're in Israel if you want to go knee-deep in water to go through the Hezekiah's Tunnel. But in any case, here's, the, here's a topo map. The lines represent 10-meter segments. And uh, we have Mount Zion, the high part on the west side there, and Mount of Olives, the high point on the east side. And there's a ridge system up the center. And... Uh, Obviously, the Kidron Valley is the valley between that ridge system and Mount of Olives to the east, and the Teropian Valley is the valley between the ridge system and uh, Mount Zion. And the Hinnom Valley is at the south. So that's a rough picture of the topography, okay? Now, Salem is the southern part. This is where, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is encountered and so forth, a place called Salem, and here, it's now run by the Jebusites, and, and, and David conquers it from the Jebusites. Later on, he's going to purchase, going uphill, up near the top, but not at the top, there's a saddleback up there that's a thrashing floor. And he purchases that, purchases that thrashing floor, and that will later become the site of the temple. Now, there's a Jewish tradition, that's also Abram offered Isaac, for a number of reasons, I suspect he did it at the top of the hill, not halfway up. When you get to the top of the hill, at the peak, there's a place called Golgotha. And uh, it starts, the, the ridge starts about 600 meters above sea level at the south, climbs to about 741 meters above sea level at the, temp, at the thrashing floor, but it continues up to 777, strangely, uh, at Golgotha. I don't make anything of the numbers. People like the 777. Wouldn't that be exciting? Well, that's an artifact of the measuring system, but... Uh, and. Uh, but as the, as, as the custodian of the garden tomb often points out, if God wanted us on the metric system, he would have had ten disciples. See? <laughs> so there's, the, there's a blow-up of that particular segment. Okay, let's continue. First Chronicles 11, 8th verse. And he built the city roundabout, even from Milo roundabout, and Joab repaired the rest of the city, the part that they tore down conquering it. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. That's a big statement. That's a big statement. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. We're not going to have a whole lot of details about the mighty men of David. And if you're really interested in how his army and who his heroes are, you may want to pay a lot of attention. We're going to just slip through this rather quickly. 
This is the number of mighty men whom David had. Jashubim, the uh, an Ahachmanite, the chief of the captains, he lifted up a spear against 300 slain by him at one time. These guys were, <laughs> were pretty skilled warriors. These are the best of the best. Can you imagine with a spear killing 300 guys? That's that are not, you know, not, not willing participants here. They're fighting you, 300 of them. After him was Eliezer, son of Dodo, the Ehohite, who was one of the three mighties. These are the top three guys. He was with David at Pasdamim, and there were Philistines, and there uh, the Philistines were gathered together to battle where there was a parcel of ground full of barley, and the people fled from before the Philistines. And they set themselves in the midst of that parcel, delivered it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. So these, this is the inner circle. Joab is actually David's nephew, son of his half-sister, Zerah. Jeshubim, he's the chief of the officers. He's the, he slayed the 300 at one time. In 2 Samuel 23, it says 800 fled. And people think, well, gee, there's a discrepancy. No, 300 were killed, 500 left. <laughs> so that's, I believe, the way you resolve that issue. But it's, a, it's conjecture. And Eliezer also dis distinguished himself. And Shammah, he's not mentioned here but he is mentioned in 2 Samuel as part of the, the top bunch here. Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock to David, to the cave of Dullam, and the host of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. We're going to talk more about Rephaim later, but it's a, for this purpose it's just a location not far from Jerusalem. And David was then in the, in, the, in the hold, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just south of, of Jerusalem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. In other words, Bethlehem is where the Philistines are camped. And David, in the casual remarks, yearned for just a cup of water from the well at Bethlehem as something he wanted. Well, these three guys, they break through the host of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. That must have impressed him, except David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.